The fourweekmba.com is a leading resource of business insights. Top business schools around the world reference to it as the go-to place for business insights. Now it's podcast. Digital business models will break down for you how tech companies make money, what value propositions they offer, why they are successful, and what they're doing next. From Amazon, Google, Facebook, and many others, the Digital Business Models Podcast will give you the top business education you need to understand the digital business world. Whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or wanting to be an entrepreneur, the Digital Business Models Podcast is your go-to place for your business education. Today we have here uh, Alan Gannett. He's the Chief Strategy Officer of uh, Skyward, founder of uh, TrackMaven which is a big data analytics company and is also the author of uh, The Credit Curve, which is a book that uh, I liked a lot and I suggest everyone reading. And today we, uh, we're actually going to explore uh, with Alan, uh, you know, the, the uh, insights about creativity, how it works, and also the misconceptions that uh, we all have about uh, how creativity works. So thank you for being uh, with us today, Alan. Thanks for having me, man. And there's a lot of misconceptions, so we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah. It was actually, uh, I had a lot of, of misconceptions before reading your book as well. So I had to say that uh, as soon as I started to read it, actually, I found out a few a few things that uh, I didn't have idea. And actually, probably it would be nice to start from there. So what's really creativity? I mean, uh, what have you been finding from your uh, research? So the funniest thing to me about creativity is how much the definition has changed over time. Um, So one of the things I talk about in the book is this sort of idea of the artist over time and how in the sort of ancient era, artists were viewed really as people who just sort of imitated God. In the medieval era, they were viewed basically just as craftspeople, like, you know, they painted some religious murals, that's great, but like it wasn't that, you know, interesting. And then really where sort of modern day form of creativity and the concept emerged was during the golden age, which was also a golden age from a capitalist perspective, um, and there was an influx of money, people could afford art, they wanted more art, supply and demand kicked in, and artists started being able to you know, command more respect, and sort of there started to be for the first time these sort of celebrity artists, and this notion of the creative as this sort of you know, masterful person sort of emerged. And so you, so you have sort of that lens, and you know, we also sort of developed over time these other notions around creativity of you know, these people are sort of semi-divine, they're a little weird, they're, they're odd and neurotic, but at the same time, they're sort of wonderful. And what's interesting is when you look at the science around creativity, mm-hmm. there's actually a lot of consensus about how it works. So the sort of the short version is that creativity is the ability to create things that are both novel and valuable. It's not just about novelty which is, you know, just productivity, really. It's not just about value. It's about creating things that are both novel and valuable. Mm-hmm. To do that, um, our brain relies on our right hemisphere, which is very good at connecting new and different ideas together. Um, but ultimately, um, it's not some magical force. Really what it is is a pretty normal biological process. We've studied it. We've observed it in MRI scans. And it's something that's actually quite explainable. Yep. So this is this is the first uh, misconception. So that creativity is something that comes uh, out of the blue. That uh, you know, uh, even uh, that actually not anyone can master. But in the book, you actually have a process in place. And actually, I think it's very interesting to 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 look at the the, the framework that you put together, which is the creative curve. So how does it work? 
Yeah, so basically, when it comes to creativity, there's sort of three elements that I think are important. So one is technical skill, so having the technical skill in your field. Two is a marketing distribution, so being able to actually get your ideas out there. And third is timing. And I spent a lot of the book um, around timing, and I call it the creative curve is sort of the framework that I use. And the creative curve isn't new. It's a sort of, I'm, you know, it's a pop psychology version of a pretty serious academic concept, which is called the inverted U-shaped relationship between preference and familiarity. But that's obviously a bad book title. And so basically what it is, is this finding that our rate of exposure to something how familiar we are with something has a pretty big influence on our perception of it. Right. And the relationship between familiarity and preference is an upside down U. Mm-hmm. That's the creative curve where when something's very new, when something's very unfamiliar, mm-hmm. we don't like it that much. But then yeah. as we're exposed to something more, like think about the first time you hear a new song, you're like, oh, this is actually pretty good. Yeah. I kind of like this. Which is, then, which is another misconception because usually what like creativity you always have this idea i think that it's something in, uh, innovative it's something that it's completely new but it's not like that you're, you're correct we don't actually like things that are radically new i mean think about if you watched a movie that was nine hours with no protagonist like you'd be terribly bored right star wars was a western in space it's actually it turns out the ideas that tend to do the best are the ideas that are familiar enough to be comfortable, but yet still novel enough to be interesting. And so the creative curve is this relationship between familiarity and preference, which basically shows this this sort of increase where the ideas that tend to take off Mm -hmm. and quickly jump in popularity are the ideas that have a blend of the familiarity and novelty. Now, eventually, all ideas reach a point of overexposure where they become cliche, and they start to lose popularity. That's Mm -hmm. sort of the downfall. And so when you talk about creative genius... What we're really talking about is the fact that there's some people out there who have this really artful ability to Mm -hmm. create things that are in that sweet spot of the creative curve where they're familiar enough to be safe to approach but novel enough to be interesting. Where at a population level, you know, there are ideas that are comfortable enough that people want to check it out. And as more people get exposed to it, they're more interested and they can quickly build in popularity. That's what creative genius really is. It's not, you know, divinity. It's just sort of timing right it's it's very interesting and actually um it's very also what you mentioned like the the point of cliche uh, especially today like with the with the with the social media it's very uh, the, the 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 belief that the more you 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 appear the more i mean the, the more you get exposure it's it is always good but as you also explain in the book either for a person but also for a brand uh, actually, there is a there is a point of cliche uh, from which uh, actually exposure is not is not is not a good thing. It's actually um, uh, diluting your brand. I don't know if that's the the, the proper uh, way to 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 say it. Um, yeah, what, what's interesting is also you know, basically this creative curve. Um, you know, which sort of you know, look at the rate of exposure and it affects people's perception of it. The, the frequency of exposure obviously uh, sets the rate at which things move through the curve. So social media is really interesting because since the unit of content is very small, people's rate of exposure is quite high. Mm-hmm. And so you know, memes on Twitter, for example, literally change within hours or days. And you know, brands get in trouble because you know, there's some meme and a week later they create some riff on the meme, but by then it's actually too late. And so you know, 
one of the things you're seeing I think is interesting for entrepreneurs and for marketers is you're starting to see this pivot away from sort of short form and social media centric content to more long form um, experiences and content. So you see brands, for example, starting to create, you know, mini documentaries or movies or TV shows because there's sort of this arms race mm-hmm. uh, within social media to stay relevant because right. you have things going through that creative curve so quickly. So a lot of people are just saying, you know, screw it, I'm going to stop playing that game. Yeah, there was actually an interesting uh, tweet, I think, uh, a few days ago, or actually yesterday from Lush, which is a British company, uh, and they announced that probably they're going to uh, manage their interaction with their community and not anymore through social media. Yeah, I saw but, the lush, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was, that was pretty interesting. And also from my perspective, I mean, I'm more on the, the, the content, uh, the writing side. Like many, many companies are going back to their blogs rather than, you know, just uh, social media and other channels of communication, which is pretty interesting because I'm... Um, uh, like to be successful in blogging as well, you you need to create like very in depth content, and uh, it, it needs to be uh, you know the, the the creative process is not easy at all. I mean, it's really uh, something that you need to master over time. But what uh, what uh, uh, drove you to study creativity? Because I mean, you uh, what, what I like about you is that you are a practitioner. You are someone you know you're you've been a CMO, and then now you're uh, you've been the founder of a company. Now you're a chief strategy. Uh, officer or another company. So I guess it's really the interest in understanding how it works in the real world. But what drove you there? Yeah, so basically, so I was running my company, which in October, we merged with another company where I'm now working. And, you know, my company, it we worked with a lot of big brands. So brands that, you know, we've worked with GE and Dollar Shave Club and the NBA and all these sort of iconic, you know, and modern brands. And what was interesting is even at those brands, and even more so in, in smaller brands, you know, you'd hear people say things like, I'm not that creative. And I have always been a big believer in sort of human potential and a big believer that, you know, a lot of life is about nurture, not about nature. Um, and that was just sort of how I was raised, right? There's, you know, um, I think just I was conditioned that way. I can relate, and, I can relate and, to that. I agree, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> And so I would get really frustrated when I'd hear this from people. And I heard a lot of negative self-talk. And I started digging into it. And I started you know, reading about it. And I found there was a lot of academic consensus that creativity can be learned. Mm-hmm. And so I started giving a speech um, that was sort of a microcosm of the book all about the myths of creative genius and how when you look at stories of people like Mozart, for example, it's not actually the story of someone who woke up playing the piano. It's actually the story of a little kid who had a father who applied conditional love and made him practice three hours a day from the age of three, seven days a week, right? And so I started giving this speech and it really resonated and it sort of snowballed into um, the book where I just realized that there's a lot to unpack here and I think there's so much human potential that is limited by the things people have told themselves about creativity. Like, oh, like, you know, I'm too old to learn that skill or you know, I was once told if I get an English degree, I'll become a barista, you know, right. I can't, you know, creativity equals poverty. I mean, all this crazy stuff. And the reality is we're entering an age where creativity is the most future-proof skill. I saw a study the other day, it said it's the number one skill employers are looking for because of an age in machines and AI and all this stuff. Like, It's the only thing that it cannot, uh, it cannot be automated yet. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when they do these experiments with AI where they try and have AI make art, like, it's kind of crappy. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's actually an, an interesting point, and um, there is also uh, for someone like me who has read another book, which is um, 
Crossing the Chasm, which is a classic book. Uh, you know, it may be easy to confuse like your curve with the, with the technology adoption curve, but those are two different concepts, right? I mean, what's the main difference? So the technology adoption curve is basically showing how something goes from 0% usage to 100% over time. And that's especially relevant for things that are commodities or utilities, right? So think about like a hard drive processor. What I'm talking about, what my curve applies to is anything that has an element of preference. And so with things that have preference, the sort of major finding that we have is that things come in and out of preference. And so the thing that's interested in is that things go from maybe 0% popularity up to let's call it 80% and then they go back down to zero or close enough to zero versus with commodities and utilities, things go to 100% and often stay at 100% until something completely replaces it. Right. And so that's the big, the big nuance difference. or difference. Nice. So uh, there is also another misconception in business, which is uh, about uh, the first mover advantage. No? I mean, in, in the book, there is a nice and interesting uh, case that you mentioned, which is about uh, the first mover in the social media space, which, is, which was not Facebook, even though many people think it was Facebook, and actually uh, how they uh, disappeared. And you have you have a you have a sort of theory, uh, yeah. So I think this is like so important. So I think entrepreneurs make this mistake all the time, and that's the mistake of thinking that the best features win, or the yeah. highest quality features, or the most advanced features. And that's not true. The companies that win have the right features at the right time. Let me explain what I mean. So in the book, I give the example of Campus Network versus Facebook. So Campus mm -hmm. Network was a social media network that launched a month before Facebook at Columbia University, another Ivy League school. It also went viral on campus, became hugely popular. Um, the founders also took off from school to try and scale it, and they were you know, very smart and capable. And for a while, if you look back at the articles from 2004, it was sort of framed as this war on campuses between Campus Network and Facebook. What's going to win each campus? That was the, the big thing. There's an article from Stanford student newspaper about about this and what's interesting is that campus network was actually more advanced it actually had more features it had things like photos activity feed news feed groups all these things that would come to facebook much much later campus network had but here's what's interesting the audience wasn't ready for that part of why facebook won is that facebook was simpler so in 2004 we were just making this transition from using screen names and pseudonyms online to this idea of using your first name, which at the time was crazy, mm -hmm. right? That was the jump people were making. That was the jump people were comfortable with. They weren't yet comfortable with the idea of broadcasting all of their activity to everyone constantly. Like now we sort of assume that, as so of now we're seeing right. backlash from that. But like at, for a while, people were like, oh, that's crazy. And so Facebook was the right idea at the right time. It was the right features for the audience. So. Oftentimes, as entrepreneurs, because we're early adopters, because we're product obsessed, we sort of say, this is the best features. This is what people want. Mm -hmm. Often, people actually just want simpler features, features that are familiar enough to be safe and approachable, but yet have a novel twist and have something intriguing that they want to check out and explore more. Yeah. I, I, I actually, uh, I know this process because I also work in a tech company and it's very easy to get in love with the features of a product rather than understanding what really the, the people are used to. And I think also in, um, in, uh, when it comes to, to uh, business modeling, uh, creativity, it's very important because it's, uh, it's a framework that allows you to come up with the strategies that uh, help you build a, a company which is uh, innovative. So... Um, 
really, um, do you have uh, any kind of preference when it comes to business modeling? As for Week MBA is a lot about uh, business modeling. Do you have any preference about uh, any kind of business model or like uh, how the creative process might help actually in shaping up a business model? Yeah, so I, you know, one of the things that I like to focus a lot on is the iterative aspect of creativity. And you know, we have this image of creativity as you know, writer goes into writing cabin, six weeks later comes out, finished novel, boom. In reality, there's always some exceptions in stories like that. But in reality, the majority of highly successful creatives are very, very iterative. And that's because they realize that their job is to create an experience for the audience. They don't actually create for themselves. That's something that people who are not that successful at creativity say. They actually, if you look at Andy Warhol's interviews or all this stuff, like they're creating for an audience. They That interaction, that audience-artist dynamic, that's what's really interesting to them. And so as a result, since they know that, they try and get feedback from their audience early and often in the creative process, right? So that can be, for example, think about a stand-up comedian. You know, stand-up comedians, by the time that they are doing their, you know, Comedy Central special or whatever, they've for years been working out those jokes and, you know, mic nights and open mic nights at small clubs. This is why big comedians go to small comedy clubs to try out jokes because there's this sort of iterative element of working through the joke, getting it to that perfect place where the audience likes it, right? It's not about you, the creator. It's about the audience. So I think when it comes to business models, the thing I'd say is how can you incorporate audience feedback early and often. Yes, How to incorporate audience feedback early and often? Because otherwise, you're just creating for a market of one, and that's not a good market. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree, and especially uh, what I like, uh, I'm, I'm trying to do uh, more right now when I try to launch like products is I try to have a feedback uh, even before I launch the product, even like even months before the, the product or uh, is, is ready just to understand if people are ready actually for, for that kind of product. So uh, it was uh, very interesting so far, Alan, and um, I just want to finish up with uh, two, three questions about, you know, uh, uh, who is your favorite uh, business person, if there is anyone that you follow the most? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I mean, my favorite business book um, is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. I think it's, you know, he does the best job, I think, of talking about entrepreneurship in a very practical way. Like he has a chapter on how do you fire your friends? Right, which is like a real problem when you're running a startup. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I'd say, you know, he's definitely sort of probably the most influential business person for me right now, just in terms of I think I reread his book every six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it just should be mandatory reading for anyone who's trying to build a company. Yeah, I, lo- I love it uh, as well. And uh, actually, you also answered to the, to the, to the other question, which is uh, what is your favorite business book after? <laughs> I, I'm an overachiever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You actually went already even to the third one, which was uh, who is your uh, favorite business author? Uh, you know, oh, uh, my God, this is just this is a layup. I love these questions. <laughs> so, uh, and you know, just uh, just to finish up, uh, if there is anyone that you suggest uh, the community to follow when it comes, of course, it's going to be you, which you're very active on LinkedIn. Uh, but uh, if there is any other person which uh, uh, people can follow when it comes to to creativity and business, and you know that. Uh, um, you said yeah, I, mean, I, I think I think um, you know I think a great compliment to my book is Ed Catmull's book Creativity Inc., which is mm-hmm. all about Pixar. And so there's a chapter in my book about Ben and Jerry's, and there's a lot of parallels to what Ben and Jerry's does in the innovation cycle and what Pixar does. And mm-hmm. I think 
I think if you read both books, I think you'll you have sort of a framework and you have a really good you know sort of book length case study and some of this stuff. But you know the short version is what Pixar does. It's so interesting is their product is not actually movies. Their product is their creative process. That's the thing they iterate. That's the thing they innovate on. And that sort of mindset, I think, is really interesting. And so that's definitely, I think, a good, um, you know, that's definitely a good pickup if you're interested in the space. Nice, nice. Interesting. Thank you very much. And, you know, uh, as I said, I suggest anyone reading your book because uh, it uh, makes you understand the, the, the real nature of creativity and all the miscon uh, misconceptions that you're going to have. You're going to lead them up once you're going to read the book. So thank you for uh, having joined us, uh, joining, joining us, uh, Alan. And, you know, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, being with us. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Digital Business Models Podcast, created by 4WeekMBA.com, the leading source of business insights for those wanting to become digital entrepreneurs. Go to 4WeekMBA.com for more top-tier business education.